0: I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Hi everyone, this is Bill Mitchell. We are around the 17th anniversary of my daughter's tragedy at the hands of her ex-boyfriend. So we are around June 3rd. And every year, it's always a time of reflection. Starting with the May 14th graduation she had, and the days after that, and then the call from detectives on that June 3rd evening. In this podcast, I wanted to go and take some of the most frequently asked questions and answer them all in one podcast. So I'll just dive into them. Here we go. What literally happened on that June 3rd day? Well, what literally happened was my daughter was in the throes of breaking up with her boyfriend, and all indications showed that. And that's from the detectives who worked the case. It obviously didn't go over very well. It led to some kind of a fight, and it led to her being murdered by him. So that's what happened. Later that day, because that happened first thing in the morning, later that day, uh, really the whole day had passed, I was contacted by local detectives because they had been contacted by detectives in the Philadelphia area to find family members of my daughter. So I was contacted, and that was the big change in our lives from that point till now. But that's literally what happened. Next question. Could anything have prevented this tragedy? Well, a few things. The key thing would be that if my daughter and her friends had some knowledge of the red flags of an unhealthy relationship, it's very possible this never would have happened because a lot of the classic warning signs of an unhealthy relationship were present over the course of months. But other than being things that this guy did that were annoying, and my daughter even used that word in an email to me, other than those things being annoying, nobody would have ever pointed to any of that and said, you know, if this really gets bad enough, someone could get killed. Knowing the warning signs is something I talk about all the time, and I've got them listed in, in my book, which is called When Dating Hurts. You can find them there, or just Google warning signs or red flags of an unhealthy relationship or a dating violence or domestic violence relationship. Another question I get What did you and your family do in the first week after the murder? When something like that happens, it's like when anybody passes away, you have to make plans to have them buried. You know, you have to pull together a a funeral visitation, and then uh, in our case, a funeral church service or mass service, burial, gravesite, all of that. That's really that consumed the first week. Of it. Another question is, what did you do over the course of that year after a couple of weeks, went back to our jobs and not so much to go lead a normal life, but you know, you have other things that you have to do and always present was what's going to happen to the guy that did it. And it took about 10 months to get to that place where he finally pled guilty and was uh, sentenced and went away to prison, and he's currently, he's still there. Question, if you could go back in time, what would you do differently? If I could go back in time, I wish that I and my family had known again more about the warning signs or the red flags of an unhealthy relationship. Um, Had I known them, then some emails that I received in the last 24 hours before Kristen was killed I probably would have looked at those emails and done a couple of things. I probably would have called her because I would have known that these warning signs, if they went to the worst place, could be leading to her being badly injured or worse. What would I have done differently is I keep saying to people, I would have had greater awareness about domestic violence and dating violence. Like most people, I never pictured this coming into our lives at all as it did. And it continues to reverberate, of course, in the worst ways, but yeah, that's what I would have done differently at that time. And also I would have called her that that's one thing it would be like, well, wait a minute, let's, let's talk about what's going on here. Like really what's going on. It probably would have turned out a lot differently, but anyway, we can't fix that, but we can definitely put other people on a better path based upon those things that we've learned. Another question, had you ever met the man who killed your daughter? Just once, really. Met him on May 14th, 2005 at my daughter's graduation. I wouldn't say I got to know him. I would just say I met him. And as I detail in the book, my initial reaction in meeting him was that I felt I would never want to tangle with this guy. He just, there was something about him, some instinctual thing that it just felt like possible trouble. And and I don't really, you know, have those kinds of instinctual feelings when I meet someone for the very first time, but it was immediate. And I just didn't follow through on it. I just felt a certain way, and I probably didn't trust that what I felt was really going to turn out badly at all. Another question is, uh, did you ever see him after that? The next time I saw him, so the first time I saw him was in May, and the second time I saw him was at the preliminary hearing in August of 2005. Then I saw him again in September 2005 at the formal arraignment and then the plea and sentencing the following April 2006. But no conversations. I mean, this guy was You know, this guy was a prisoner at that point. A question we are asked sometimes is, have you ever spoken with any of his family members? And no, no one's ever reached out to us, nor have we reached out to them. I'm asked sometimes to compare the very first year to this, the 17th year. And I would say that the shock and the horror of it was a huge part of the first few years. And it's still there, but not quite as present. But at this point, the feeling of loss is it's just so deep and so horrible. You know, all of Kristen's friends have gone on to jobs. You know, they've been in jobs for years and many are married. Some have kids and, you know, we knew from the very beginning, those things were not going to be happening for us with regards to her, of course. So it was sad even then, and then it's, of course, sad to see those things playing out, and we're happy for her friends, but of course, we can't help but feel a little bit sorry for ourselves. A question is, you've given over 100 speeches on dating violence. Where were they given? I would say mostly colleges and universities. Now, on the WhenDatingHurts.com website, I detail every speech or TV, radio interview, or podcast I've ever given. So you can see the list, but mostly colleges and universities. There have been high schools in there. There have been community groups. There have been police groups. One case was a police academy. Uh, one of them was in front of just a, a police force, New Jersey Police Force. Domestic violence agencies. I've spoken before them on a number of occasions. So that always feels like the right thing to do. I like to give the talks there. They're emotionally difficult to do, but I know that a lot of good can come out of that. So, so I encourage people that if they wanted me to speak with their group, just to ask. I am asked sometimes when you give these talks, what is it like reliving the tragedy? And it's exactly the way you would think it would be. It's very difficult, it's very hard, but it's something that I just push myself through because I feel there's a greater good. The question is, you wrote and published the When Dating Hurts book two years ago. What can you tell us about the experience? Well, I felt it was a cathartic experience to do it. It's a lot of work writing a book. It's it's physically something that you do. I mean, you're physically sitting in a chair and pushing words, as I call it sometimes. There's a good amount of organization one has to do. There's a lot of pre-planning in my case, there was a lot of chasing down details that I either had notes about or had to contact people. So I was accurate with what I put in the book. Emotionally, it was very trying, but the worst parts were just around the time around the tragedy. I'd say the 24 hours before and the 24 hours after the tragedy was very hard to write about but very necessary. One question is where is the book available and it is available on Amazon and it is available in paperback, ebook and audiobook. And I had to make a decision about the audiobook whether to hire someone to to read the book and record it or to do it myself and I just felt like it was such a personal story that it only made sense for me to read my own book which I did and then I edited and I then you know eventually uploaded it into Amazon about a year and a half ago I launched the podcast so there's a question why did you create a podcast and the reason for that is that it's more immediate than any other form of communication Because something like a book, for most people, takes a long, long time. This book took me several years to put together. Um, It was my first book ever, so there was a lot of learning. There was a lot of stuff I had to wrestle with, with just, just putting together a book. I mean, just the style of it, what points I wanted to cover. The editing of it took a fair amount of time. Deciding what things to put in, leave out. Some things I had to write and try that I later decided to pull out of there. So that took time. And then there's the formatting of the book, which I did myself. And I formatted it as a paperback and also an ebook. And those are stylistically very different ways of formatting something. And then just months ago, put together the audiobook. and it takes months. In my case, it took months to do all that narration and editing, putting it all together. I feel good about the podcast. Our guests have been first and foremost survivors who I admire for their courage and their ability to express themselves. People who have figured out the hard way how to execute breaking free from some abusive situation with of course, some abuser, um, I have all the utmost admiration for them. But I also interview domestic violence counselors and domestic violence agency directors. And all that information is just so great, so valuable. There's a detective I work with or who worked our case. I won't say I work with him, but he worked our case. And that's a, that's a really good one. That was actually one of the first interviews that I did. And then parents of both victims and survivors. Again, those are really good to listen to. They're all they're all really good. And at this particular time, there are about 40 episodes available. And, of course, podcasts don't cost anything. And they uh, are just so informative. A question is, are you satisfied with the podcast? And I would say that I feel good that there are about 40 episodes and more than 18,000 downloads or plays. So that's... Pretty remarkable. I mean I, I guess I really, my earliest estimation, I, I never saw those kinds of numbers, so I, I am very happy about that, uh, really far beyond any estimation of how this would go, how often they'd be picked up and listened to. Now the question is, the book, the podcast, and speeches, do you have other plans for other tactics? And actually the answer is no. It's not so much for me about wanting other tactics. I just want greater frequency with the tactics I have. So what that means is that I, of course, love for more people to read the book, which details what happened so others can learn from us. Besides that, there are just so many insights about the warning signs that can save lives and have already saved people's lives. At least that's what they've told me. It's so much more possible to find statistics of things that have happened Versus things that did not happen. But all things considered, no, I'm, I'm happy with the tactics that we have. I hadn't thought about adding anything else except just more podcast episodes and, and uh, getting more speeches, that kind of thing. Another question is how can people engage with what you're doing? And that's easy. Just head to whendatinghurts.com. And from there, you can get to everything I have going on. And you can reach me through there too, whendatinghurts.com. That's an easy one. Question, the man who murdered your daughter pled guilty and received 15 to 30 years. That means he's already come up for parole reviews, right? Yes, he's been turned down two times in 2020 and 2021. And of course, we hope he's turned down again this year and year after year, considering what he did. Question, if you could leave us with one thought that we'd never forget, what would it be? I'd want you to be left with this thought, that dating violence can affect anyone's life, not just someone from the other part of town or some particular group maybe you have in mind, uh, some cliched, stereotypical group. I want people to know and remember that it is everywhere. And that's not just my opinion. It's really true. Now, the only statistic I ever offer, and it's a shocking one but easy to remember, is that one in three women will suffer serious physical harm from an intimate partner during their lifetime. And it typically happens between the ages of 16 and 24, but it can happen at any age. So who is that? I mean, maybe that's your daughter. Maybe that's your niece. Maybe that's your cousin. Maybe that's some girl that lives in your neighborhood and is growing up near you. Maybe it's one of your coworkers. 33% of women. That's an incredibly large number of women. Knowing that's the case, which it is, that should drive you to want to know, well, what are these warning signs just in case Maybe something's going on around me and I miss it. And that's the way it happens if you don't know any better. I'd like to thank you for listening. Think about reading the When Dating Hurts book. If you get a chance, it is it is a lifesaver. I've been, I've been told that enough times. Head to whendatinghurts.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast. And if you know of somebody who is a survivor or... Uh, If you want to be interviewed on this because you have insights into dating or domestic violence, I would encourage you to go to the website and send me an email, okay? You'll find everything you need right there on the WhenDatingHurts.com website. And thank you very much for listening to this today. Thank you for supporting me. And let's really go out and educate people, bring awareness about dating violence and let's save lives together, okay? Thank you very much. Bye. The When Dating Hurts book was published in paperback in the middle of 2020, followed soon after by the ebook version. While those two were out there in the world informing about dating violence, in early 2021, I launched the When Dating Hurts podcast. Now, in 2022, I'm publishing the When Dating Hurts audiobook. I did the narration myself because this is my family's story. It's also a story that can save one of your family members. Find the When Dating Hurts audiobook on Audible, Amazon, or iTunes. It's the same life-saving information from the print versions, but now in listening form. Do yourself a favor. Do your family a favor. The When Dating Hurts audiobook is available now.